Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about how ethical business cultures go far beyond improving the bottom line. They help bring people closer together and strengthen society itself. I'm your host, Bill Coffin, and this is The Ethicast. According to the 2023 Edelman Trust Barometer, the average percentage of people who trust non-governmental organizations, business, government, and media is only 56%. Yet among that, business clearly stands out as the most trustworthy of the four at 64%. And within that, the business subcategory of my employer stands out even further at a whopping 79%. The truth is, people tend to trust their employer for a variety of reasons, and trust doesn't necessarily come with compensation. It comes from culture, which is why Ethisphere believes so strongly that businesses with strong cultures of ethics outperform their peers. Case in point, the five-year ethics premium, which you can see over at worldsmostethicalcompanies.com. But what if ethical business culture was even more important than helping business itself? What if it was playing a special role in creating a better society for everyone? With us today to discuss this is Tim Fort, Professor of Business Law and Ethics at the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. Tim's primary research interest concerns how ethical business conduct can foster sustainable peace. And for more than 20 years, he has examined how business institutions can help create a more harmonious society. He is a prolific author, including the award-winning book, The Diplomat in the Corner Office. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Bill. So as someone whose area of expertise is around ethical decision-making and building ethical corporate cultures, you've mentioned how you feel that businesses provide a unique opportunity for people to come together and find common ground. That seems especially important now amid a time of intense political and cultural polarization. Can you expand on that? Sure. Um, you know, we do have a lot of issues in this country right now, but let me give you a couple of reference points where the things were much worse and the positive thing that businesses were able to do. I'm speaking specifically about post-genocide Rwanda. Now we have problems in this country, but post-genocide Rwanda is an entirely different kind of, a, of an issue. Uh, there were a million people that were not just killed, slaughtered, uh, just in terms of the population uh, demographic and and uh, to, to, to align things, that would be about equivalent to 40 million Americans being killed. Can you imagine what our life would be like if 40 million Americans were killed? So there was a group of women afterward who wanted to find from both sides, the Hutus and the Tutsis, find a way to find each other, to find a way to hang on to each other, to find a way to have a new life together. And they first formed a musical group, a drumming troupe, where they are able to rehearse and to perform together. And they enjoyed each other so much, they formed an ice cream business, which was the first one in Rwanda. And they successfully managed a, uh, a ice cream business, at least until COVID. I haven't heard an update of what happened after COVID, but it brought them together for a common ground, for a common goal of doing something together. Even if that common ground is something as simple as making money, they have to be able to provide some sort of a team, some sort of an organization, have some sort of a trustworthy culture in order to make the business operate. Or to give another example, during Northern Ireland's troubles, there was an organization, a nonprofit called Futureways that intentionally hired half Catholics, half Protestants to work together and it was the first time that those populations 
had the opportunity to work together as opposed to throwing rocks or bullets at each other. So, I mean, those are extreme examples, but I do think the business is a really undervalued opportunity because it provides an opportunity for people from different walks of life, different political persuasions, different religious beliefs, to be able to find some way to do something together. Again, even if it's just to make a profit, but even to make a profit, as your studies have showed with Ethosphere, you've got to have something a little bit richer than just profit that's driving you. You have to find some way in order to create an organizational culture where people are interested in working together. And business has the opportunity to do that. And I think there are big spillover opportunities of business doing that well. When it comes to promoting strong ethical behavior, immediate managers play an especially important role. Uh, they tend to be the people to whom employees most commonly bring their ethical or cultural concerns. So I'm wondering, can you speak about the special opportunity that managers have to be a prime mover of an organization's com uh, culture and how can companies best support that, that reality? So I've been a professor for 30, 38 years now, and I'm going to give you all an assignment. You've got an assignment that you got to do <laughs> in order to really answer that question. It's one that I've been doing here for a couple of years and not a couple of years, about six years or so. And I've been astonished of how receptive students are. I mean, on the one hand, I'm not because it's about the most entertaining assignment you can have in a business school program. But at the same time, it really gets a point across that's kind of unexpected. That is, I take I take a, a moral psychology development by Kohlberg and Gilligan, and I think that we all probably are fairly familiar with that. And you know, basically, you're ethical in order to stay out of trouble, or you're ethical in order to maintain a relationship, or you're ethical because you want to do something that is that is noble. And what I do is that I um, first I give that as a sports analogy of six ways to watch a sporting event and kind of you know, redo Kohlberg and Gilligan. But then I ask students to find a piece of music that puts them in each one of those psychological categories, because you make decisions differently if you just listen to Rocky and someone is pummeling somebody's face, as opposed to listening to something of friends and talking about, I'll be there for you. Your mind is different. Your cognitive outlook is different. And so one of the, so I asked students, I said, do that because then you've got to walk away that when you realize that you're not quite in the same frame of mind, right frame of mind that you should be, you've got your own song that you can listen to that puts you into that category. And a particular set of those that are relationship driven also provide common ground for people to find bridges with each other that they can, can work together or find a way to find each other even if they're in the midst of differences. I would highly encourage managers to do exactly that. Have your have your, and you can write me for more information in terms of you know, what, it, what the, the assignment looks like, but have your, 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 your reports find songs that put them in certain states of mind and find those states of mind that tend to knit them together. And you will find that people find common ground way quicker than you ever expected. After we're doing that, my students can have really hard conversations about things that they differ on because they found something that they can hold on to even when they're still disagreeing. That's amazing. You know, here at Ethosphere, we have our, our monthly uh, town hall meetings. And one of our, our rituals is that every new employee to the company during the first town hall, uh, as they introduce themselves, they also tell the whole group, what is their, what is their walk on music, right? You know, what, what would be their dramatic entry music? And we've got a, a company playlist of everybody's walk on music. And to your point, yeah, it's amazing how instantly it just connects people and it gives people a, a, a point of reference. And you may not know who this person is, where they're from, what their skill set is, but you know that 
you know, if they are loving a John Fogarty song or something and you love it too, well then right off the bat, you have that connection. So I, I, right. I definitely see where you're coming from. And I would, I would build on that. You can, you can do the same thing with what I call cultural artifacts of other things like sports, film, mm. uh, music. I've done it with classes before and I have them. Uh, another technique is to, I have the students identify five of their favorite film, five of their favorite food, five of their favorite religious beliefs. Literally, we've gone even that far. And then for them to sit down and say, okay, whether or not yours was number one, can you identify with one of the top five that other people suggested? They do it in 45 seconds yeah. because it gets it out there and they realize that they're not as different as what they thought they might be. We often speak about how businesses must uh, obtain and maintain a social license to operate. So to what degree does a organization's culture factor into this, both as a place for their workers to come together and as part of a larger society? I'd like to tweak that just a little bit. Um, yeah. I'm, a, um, I'm not a deontological ethicist. Uh, I'm not a lot into musts, duties, oughts, and things like that. I'm more of an Aristotelian searching for excellence, what's possible, what's the, what would be an admirable thing to do, what would be a wonderful thing to do, what would be an inspiring thing to do. And so I'd like to think of it maybe a little bit in this way of not what must you do in order to maintain a social license, but what people look to in order to see what the social license might look like and what businesses can do in order to identify what that is. And the example that I want to give you is going to come from another cultural artifact. That's all I'm doing these days are these cultural, or as my co-author says, my co-author is Kristen Hahn on, on a book that we're writing. She's the executive producer of uh, Apple TV's The Morning Show with Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston. And Kristen likes to call it a shared cultural experience, which I think is a better thing. I'm going to go to yeah. sports. I'm going to go to Indiana, where I am right now, to sporting um examples of coaching. So here just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Bobby Knight died. Uh, Bobby Knight was a legendary Indiana basketball coach, won three national championships. I mean, just an iconic figure. He also had some, did some problematic things in the way that he treated his players and throwing chairs out onto the basketball. And, and everybody acknowledges that. I mean, Knight himself yeah. acknowledges that, but he was a brilliant, successful coach who demonstrated the way the coaching was back in the 70s and 80s. I mean, that's that's you know, that's kind of what you aspired to was to be that kind of a coach. There was another coach in Indiana, the coach of the Indianapolis Colts who won when they won the Super Bowl, Tony Dungy. And back when I was at George Washington University, I was the academic director of a program for NFL players getting their MBAs and a version of that program to came to Kelly here a couple of years ago. So we've had about 200 current and former NFL players getting their MBAs here. In the last Super Bowls, you've seen at least two Kelly students on the field for the last 10 years, at least two. So anyway, when I was teaching that class, I asked the football players, these are current and former NFL players. I said, what is the single coach that you would most want to play for? Every single one of them said Tony Dungy, every single one of them. And the reason they said he treats us like a person. He doesn't browbeat us. He doesn't insult us. He disciplines us, but he shows us how we can be better in a strong, positive way. That's a different style of coaching. Bobby's night, night's coaching doesn't work very well today. Tony Dungy's does. And so that's not to say everybody's a Tony Dungy, but I can tell you that it, it differentiates the kind of a license of the way that we operate in football that's different than it was 40 years ago. Business has the same opportunity. It's not so much what you must do, but by businesses doing something in a little bit different way, they may change the way that we look at what a successful and a good business looks like. 
The next presidential election cycle is upon us in the United States amid an ongoing culture war that is asking fundamental questions, not just about governance, but about accountability, about ethics, and even about what it means to abide by the rule of law. So what advice would you give to corporate leaders who maybe don't want to get involved in politics, but who oversee workplaces where these things are bound to bubble up, and more importantly, who uphold their organizational culture through values-based leadership? So that's a great question. And don't we all dread what 2024 is going to be looking like, uh, me included. Um, two techniques that I would use that I start every one of my classes on and which I've used in consulting assignments with a lot of you know, for real, for-profit businesses. One is I ask uh, the participants, students or members of employees or shareholders or whoever I'm talking to, to nominate um, uh, values that they would like to see an organization that they're part of uh, work by, what virtues would they like to see practice, or even what what characteristics do they admire in people that they've worked with over the years. And we put them on, all on the board, and there's a whole bunch of them. Um, but then we vote on the seven most popular, and they always end up the same. Every single time they end up the same. I mean, there's accountability, there's creativity, there's responsibility, there's loyalty, there's compassion, there's communication. And what I found is that everybody will find that they agree on that. Now, everybody may have a different weighting of which one of those seven they think are the most important. And that's where a lot of the conflict comes, that this particular number, my number six is more important than your number two, and you can go to battle on that. But I think simply posting, first asking, asking people what their values are as opposed to telling them what your values should be. There's something powerful about people having their own voice. But once they see that there is a shared values up there, even if they disagree of which one should be two versus six, it's harder to get into the, the, the big bombast. And it's, 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 it's a demonstration of governance of the values that we are going to live by, recognizing that we have a little bit different weights to it. That's one thing. The other thing that I do with all my students, and again, I've done in consulting, the most... The, the, the most natural way for people to talk about ethics is to tell stories. It is. And so I have people, my students, tell me a story, not about something bad. That's way too easy. We can all think of something that really ma makes us mad. Tell me a story about something that you thought was really good and then explain why you thought it was good. And I've done that again with consulting. I did it with a company that was going, it was a family business going into the fourth generation of business ownership with 30 shareholders and they hated each other's guts on political issues. That was exactly why they become very, very diverse. And they hired me thinking that was gonna side with one side as opposed to the other, which of course I didn't do. I made them tell their stories. And after they told their stories, they, they found something in each other. Even if they still disagreed with each other, they recognized that there was a sincerity to that other person's story. There was a value to that other person's story. And I've checked back in with them from time to time. And they said, Tim, we don't know why we ever hire you because we get along so well. It's like, you're ready to kill each other. It's like, don't tell me you got along so well. But storytelling, even if you differ, people can respect the values. I don't know if any of our, I'll, I'll close with this, but I don't know if any of our, our, our watchers are devotees of musical theater. But uh, there was in Hamilton, there is a great scene, um, and it's pretty true you know, historically, 
of where Thomas Jefferson is running for president at the time, the vice presidential candidate, if they got enough vote, could could flip over and become the president, kind of like Pence coming over Trump to become president last time around. So Aaron Burr was running for president, and he and Thomas Jefferson tied, and it got thrown into the House of Representatives. They were both in the same party, the Democratic-Republican Party at the time. And um, uh, so the Federalists, which was the other party, of which Alexander Hamilton was the leader, was going to decide the election. And Hamilton and Jefferson had disagreed with each other on everything in George Washington's administration. They fought on everything. And they went to Hamilton and said, well, who are you going to support? And he said, Jefferson. And people were shocked. And they said, why Jefferson? He said, Jefferson has beliefs. Burr has none. Mm -hmm. People can respect different beliefs if they're conveyed sincerely and if they are important. Now, I still think you probably need a cultural artifact in order to be able to provide to hold people together. But I think as we go into the 24 election to give people the opportunity to say what their values are and to see that it's a waiting issue as opposed to a disagreement issue on the values and then give people the opportunity to tell the stories that they think are important in fairly small groups, no bigger than 30. There's a reason for that. No bigger than 30. You will find that people can find a way to get along with each other, even in the midst of a lot of debate. Well, Tim, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. It's been great to have you on the show and to get your takes on these things. Thanks very much for having me. I enjoyed it. To get your copy of The Diplomat in the Corner Office, please visit Stanford University Press or Amazon. And keep your eyes out for Songs, Sports, Stories, and Suppers, How Shared Cultural Experiences Can Save America, a forthcoming book by Kristen Hahn and Tim Fort coming soon. And to learn more about the Kelly School of Business, please visit kelly.iu.edu. To learn more about how Ethisphere can help you analyze, measure, and improve your organization's culture, please visit ethisphere.com and hit the Culture Assessments link in our Solutions tab. And while you're there, make sure to scroll down and subscribe to our Culture Corner newsletter for the latest insights and trends for transforming your corporate environment. I'm Bill Coffin, and this has been The Ethicast. For more episodes, please visit the Ethisphere YouTube channel at youtube.com slash ethisphere. And if this is your first time enjoying the show, please make sure to like and subscribe either on YouTube or on our podcasting platforms at Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon Music. Thanks so much for joining us. And until next time, remember, strong ethics is good business.